Good morning. Thank you, Mel, wherever he went. There's Mel. I know he was pretty nervous, but uh, even after doing it as many years as I've been doing this, I still get nervous. So if my heart rate gets pumped up here, we'll know that that's what's happening. But uh, Mel has done such a phenomenal job with us. One of my dear friends was struggling with depression, anxiety, suicidal ideation, and it was pretty real, pretty serious. And we were able to get him in to see Mel. And some people talk about their therapeutic processes. Other people want nothing to remind them of that when they're not in that room, like want to go back out in the world like everything is just hunky-dory and that uh, they didn't need that. Not my friend. Comes up to me the very first time after seeing Mel and gives me a big old hug and he's like, Mel, that's my guy right there. You know, just the, the hope and healing that he got from Mel and Jesus coming forward through Mel. So um, thank you for the partnership. And um, I tell you, um, it has been incredible being here as a part of Christ First Counseling Center. And you guys got just a little bit of a taste of what's going on. And grab Mel afterwards. He loves being asked questions. And so put him on the spot. It'll be great. Um, last week, uh, David Manor spoke on Psalms 13. So I thought we'd start today with a little quiz just to see how many of you remembered from his message. So we're going to get some paper out. Do you guys have the test booklet underneath your chairs there? No. David did an outstanding job, didn't he? Walking through Psalms 13 and the part that stood out to me the most was how do we lament? I hope this week you had an opportunity to think about just the lament that you go through in your day-to-day -day lives, week-to-week -week lives, and how to use what David shared with, with the congregation and me and, and on video. Um, just so that we can calm our brains down and fully get into this place to hear what God uniquely has for you, I want you to rest assured that I have um, really dedicated this time and have told Lisa that by no circumstances will I sing like David did. So rest assured that will not happen during this time. I took an oath to do no harm. None will be done today. So I want to delve into... The treasure trove, this nervousness here, I didn't uh, turn on the PowerPoint here. Any idea if the PowerPoint's coming up? Turn on the clicker. There we go. That's awesome. 
Yeah, there we go. I want to focus um, in on Psalms 18, and I'm going to go through a couple of things here this morning, but just as a broad overview, this is from King David, and what a powerful psalm. A man who experienced both triumph and trials in his life. In Psalms 18, David pours out his heart to God, declaring his faithfulness and seeking refuge in times of his trouble. We're going to explore a little bit of this heartwarming message that's really um, inside of Psalms 18 and focus on the incredible truth that God of the universe delights in us. In a world filled with uncertainty and struggles, it's easy to forget the depth of God's love for us. This psalm reveals the intimate relationship that David had with God, highlighting the fact that the Almighty, that the Almighty takes pleasure in those who love him. The psalm is rich with poetic language and imagery, expressing David's gratitude, trust, and faith in God's deliverance and the protection that he brings. Let us open our hearts to really grasp this profound meaning of God's delighting in us and how it can transform our lives. In the first part of that Psalms 18, um, as she so wonderfully read, by the way, isn't that incredible? I can barely do English and she just seamlessly transitions between Spanish and English. I'm like, how cool is that? Um, but anyway, I I'm amazed by that, so thank you for doing that today. In verses 1 through 6 there, it's a cry for help. In that first verse section of the verses there, he is desperate. David, King David, is desperate. He cries for help in the midst of his distress. He calls God for his strength. He calls God his strength, his fortress, his deliverer. Like David, we all encounter life and the hardships that come with it. Amen? If you're here today and you've never been through heartache or you've never been through something hard, I would, um, I would say that maybe you're not aware of the depth of the stress that you face or stress is on its way. It happens to all of us. It doesn't discriminate for any of us. As the mighty deliverance in the next section there, we read about God's awe-inspiring response to David's cry for help. I, I love how he shows up the imagery is so powerful of thunder, lightning, the shaking of the earth. Just represents his majestic power and intervention on David's behalf. 
As we reflect on this, we are reminded of God's sovereignty over all creation and his willingness to come to aid when we call for it. When we call for him. And the part that I've just been most ruminating on for the past six months, 16 through 19, when he proclaims he brought me out, this just want you to think about that. That he's crying out and he heard me from the temple. He heard me. The God of the universe, the very God that created you, hears your cry. Is anybody else moved by that? I think that's where my heart and soul has been, is just... He hears me. He reaches down from on high. He pulls me out of the deep water. (laughs) I think we probably too quickly forget what kind of deep water we find ourselves in. The water gets pretty deep in some of our lives. We have been rescued, yes, but... He continues to rescue us. Our enemies are too mighty for us. But no one and nothing is too mighty for him. He defeated my enemies. Then this next part just amazes me. And he said, he drew me out into the open space because he delighted in me. He delighted in me. The open space depicts freedom with him. Isn't that amazing to be in freedom and to have the God of the universe delighting in us in the open spaces with such freedom to be with him? Love that. When we look at embracing our identity as God's children, as we move further through this psalm, we see David describing the reasons behind God's delight in him. David's heart was steadfast, and he walked in righteousness and obedience to God's commands. God's delight in David was rooted in the close relationship that they shared. When we live in alignment with his will, we can rest assured that he delights in us as well. This isn't just for David, a man after God's own heart. It's for each one of us here, each one of us. Rejoicing in God's deliverance, the psalm continues with an emphasis on God's power and deliverance. You know, that David experienced God's protection and victory which further really affirms how God delighted in him. When we face trials, we can find solace 
in the knowledge that God takes pleasure in delivering us, that he's with us in the pain of the storm. He's there with us, even when we don't see him working. He's working right there with us. Sometimes he removes us from the trial, but sometimes he just comforts us through it. Even when we feel weak and inadequate, God delights in demonstrating his power through us. Our weakness becomes an opportunity for God's strength to shine forth. As we surrender our lives to him, we experience his delight in using us for his purposes. Amen? This goes against a lot of the things that we're taught and how culture has really influenced us to say, in our power, we get value. The more power, the more value. The more education, the more wealth, all those things. It's not our own strength that prospers us. It's in our weakness. I want you to take a look at this for a little bit of a, of a history lesson. Uh, there are six caryatides that the Greeks in ancient history in the fifth century had around uh, this temple. And I can't pronounce the temple's name, so don't ask me. You'll have to look it up. But uh, um, I've stood just right there beside where those are. Um, my wife's family is from Greece, and so every time we go, we visit the Parthenon. Huge rock in Athens. And it's unbelievably amazing, but I don't know if you can tell from your angle, but I'm pretty pale. And so stick me on top of a rock in the middle of concrete jungle, you know, closer to the sun. And, you know, FAA has to issue warnings for pilots flying around there so that they don't get distracted. It's crazy. But these caryatides are really to demonstrate power, strength, and beauty as these women hold up this temple. It's pretty incredible what these caryatides do as pillars, but you can see how just their strength. And when you think about us and what we value, we want to picture ourselves being able to hold up everything around us. And these caryatides do exactly that. And something just went, there we go. But I think when we're able to look at this caryatide, I think we're able to see more of us. This is a work done by um, Augusta Rodin, and it was initially a bronze sculpture and Rodin did this as really a depiction of the woman 
carrying her burden, the sorrow, the un, unbelievable pain that she bore, and being overwhelmed with fatigue, exhaustion, and no longer able to move forward. If you see this, this is a woman. And remember the traditional robe that they had that was long and flowing there? And her arms are like this, trying to hold this part of the stone up that now has become a part of her. You see it's cutting into her head, her shoulder, and it's just starting to just crush her. You don't have to raise your hand, but think about yourself in that image being crushed by the despair of this world. The amount of pressure around us can be daunting. And when we see ourselves in this, we often think, where is God? Where is my comforter? Where is my deliverer? Why has he not removed this stone from me? David talked about that last week. Now I want you to look at it from a different view, not just you as this person, but maybe the person sitting next to you, maybe the person in your family, that you see them sitting on the floor, holding that stone, overwhelmed. Our impulse is that we must in strength go and remove the stone or the rock from their lives. I wish that we had that kind of power to take other people's burdens from them. Rodin, the artist of this, was one time quoted as saying that no experience is wasted if it's used wisely. No experience is wasted if it's used wisely. How many of you learn when you're in this position? Sometimes we learn how weak and dependent upon the Father we are. Sometimes we learn how desperate we are for him, our limited capacity that we have. But sometimes we're able to, in that place, go, he is so amazing. He is right here, comforting. I feel his presence with me. That he is able to put his arm around us and provide that great comfort. But yet sometimes we can also feel that our spouse, our best friend, our sibling, the pastor, a stranger, can sometimes be the person that God speaks through to bring his comfort, to wrap somebody else's arm around you in the midst of your trial. 
be looking this week. Maybe God has something for you to see people around you hurting that you may sit with them. That you may be able to be Christ for them in that moment. To bring the Jesus in you to the Jesus in them. The Christ, I think that this really represents Christoformity really well. That we are being shaped into his likeness. And in that Christ likeness, we not only go through pain, but we get to use it to shape us. You look through Paul's work. Every one of Paul's works was really shaped to help people move towards Christoformity, to move towards Christ-likeness. Paul knew, as you guys know, Paul knew what failure was. Whether it was churches failing, whether it was friends and strife and things not working out exactly like he wanted or persecution, he knew pain. But he also knew success. It's not a single thing. We can experience both the pain of this world and also the success with him. I tell you, one of the examples of this to me comes through the story of Hannah. And I, I love Hannah. I love the, the story that she brings. And, and it's in 1 Samuel. And there's a lot of words there. So I'm not going to read through all of those this morning. I only have another hour or so, so I don't want to go through all of those. But the story of Hannah is a great example of remaining faithful through struggles. Please go and read this story. I'm not going to go through every detail, but please go and read this story. Hannah was very miserable. If you look at her story, the amount of misery that she dealt with, um, the amount of bitterness of soul that she was experiencing, the wailing of her soul that one author had suggested because she wasn't able to bear a child. All she wanted was a son. And uh, we weren't able to have a child for the first 16 years of our marriage. And fertility is much like Hannah being the first one in scriptures to suffer from infertility. It is like a silent suffering that many go through that nobody gets to see, but everybody has a view of it. It's like, I can't tell you how many times I just wanted people to get out of our reproductive lives and stop hassling us because they had no idea of the journey we were on, right? There was pain. There was a lot of growth and a lot of things going on. But that pales in comparison to what Hannah went through with her husband's other wife she was still the favored one. But 
she was ridiculed consistently. She was ridiculed because back then in, in her day, if you weren't able to have a child, you were worthless. You were worthless. You brought no value to the economy of the family. There's one thing to just have infertility, but then there's another to have a whole culture go, well, you can't have a baby, and so you must, must be worthless. Because babies back then were far different than they're seen today. As many of you know, that wealth was directly tied to the amount of children that you had back then. And I see some of you are, are wealthier than others. But uh, I was beyond my parental capacity at once, so we stopped at one, I guess. But uh, it was tied to wealth for this reason, because they were laborers. The more children you had, the more workers that you could have so that you could make more. Parents are going, amen, you got the lawn to mow today. But it was tied to the wealth, but not just for the wealth of the family, but it is interesting to look at our survival rates nowadays is almost 100%. I mean, it's really outstanding the way that we are able to care for infants during delivery. But back in Hannah's day, only four out of 10 children made it to adulthood. Only four out of 10. And those kids were the ones that were going to make sure that the family had labor, but they also made sure that in your elder years you were cared for. People literally starved to death if they didn't have children providing food for them. And so it's not just a, a part of, hey, we want a blessing of a child so that we can have a child, but if you could have children, you were seen not only as wealthy and that you were gonna be taken care of in your elder years, but you were seen as a hero for your culture. I don't know about you, but that's some pressure to walk around with day in, day out that Hannah had of feeling worthless every time that she would travel to temple going, still no child. And so I want to go through those scriptures, by the way, if, if you want to write those down. 1 Samuel 1, 4 through 11, and 1 Samuel chapter 2, 1 through 10. But I think we can learn something pretty powerful in the next little bit here from Hannah. Step one here. Um, the, I was at a conference not long ago and here I am fervently trying to take notes and the younger person next to me just had their phone just taking pictures, right? Going, there's an economy of effort difference here for sure. But here's the steps that I think we can learn from. One is that Hannah arose. She decided to take action. 
she decided to take action. She was praying to God, and she rejected the cultural pressures and the idols of the time. Family and children were seen as idols. Only value that you had is if you had a family and you had children. She was able to arise, take action, and begin praying to God differently instead of her wanting to have that power and prestige in her culture, everything about her changed. And in step two, she pours herself into truth about who God is, the Lord Almighty, His majesty. And when Dallas Willard said this, it just made me set up and take note that all of our problems can be broken down into two categories, really. A wrong narrative about who he is and who we are in relationship to him. A wrong narrative about who we are and who we are in relationship with him. Hannah said, I am here to serve with you. I am here to serve with you. Every day our brains are pummeled with thousands of messages, many of them untrue. Many of them untrue. We have to be able to differentiate between what is truth and what's a lie. What reinforces the narrative about who God really is and who detracts from, you know, those messages that detract from that. There's a phenomenal book called um, being Finding Quiet by J.P. Moreland. Finding Quiet by J.P. Moreland. We spoke on it, Lisa, when was that? Was that like a couple weeks ago? July 9th? And, um, but I tell you, it's worth the read. And if you're into audible books, it's like four and a half hours. But it's really powerful if you want to get control of anxiety and depression and be able to uniquely blend theological truths with really neuroplasticity and how our brains really work. Step three is very important. She assumed that the brokenhearted mattered to God. The brokenhearted mattered to God. There's something interesting that happens between us crying out to him and his faithfully showing up, his gift of that, that grace that he pours on us showing up, the assurance of being heard. She believed that she was being heard by God. So she cried out, and you look there in Psalms 34, 18, and 19. The Lord is close to the brokenhearted. You guys know that. Know that scripture. You probably have said that many times to yourself and other people in your family, but it's worth remembering in those times. Step four, she surrendered not only her present day desires, but her future desires as well. Because obviously there was a lot tied to having a child. And she says, I, I don't care. I don't care about the power, the prestige, the anything that I will benefit from having this child, I'll give it all up. Not for me, but for you. 
if I have a child, they will be in ministry. And as you know, she had Samuel, who became a prophet, um, a prophet Samuel, and um, she basically making him a Nazarite, becoming a Nazarite, to more fully participate in the salvation of the world and partner with him in kingdom work. She knew that she was going to have this child, and then this child would be raised pretty much by somebody else and would be away from her for a lifetime. And she said, I don't care. I want to do this with you. It's amazing. It's amazing. I know that the story doesn't just stop with that. It doesn't just stop with Hannah having Samuel and then being barren the rest of her life. But her husband prayed for her frequently before this and after this. And after Samuel was dedicated, her husband and others continued to pray. She had five other children, three boys, two girls. She didn't ask for a baby as a manipulation, like, hey, if you do this, God, I'll do this. Right? That's like trying to say, God, I'll do this for you. But I'm doing this for you because when I have a need, I'm going to cash in my chips and I'm going to call in a favor. And then you'll do this for me. That's not what Hannah did. Hannah said, I'm giving up every one of my desires because I want to be obedient to you, faithful to your calling upon my life. That's a huge sacrifice, folks. Huge. Not just present day, but she knew what that meant going down the line. I can only depend on you, Father. Love that. I wonder today what each of us need to be thinking about. What do we need to surrender in order to more fully follow him? In Psalms 18, it presents such a beautiful portrait of God's love for his children. Just as he delighted in David, he delighted in Hannah, and he delights in each one of us here today. Understanding and embracing this truth transforms the way we view ourselves, our relationship with God, and also the challenges that we encounter along the way. We are cherished, loved, and delighted in by the creator of the universe. I ask that this knowledge just fill our hearts with gratitude, joy, and a deep desire to walk closely with him delighting in his presence as he delights in us, not for what we get out of it, not for something that we're cashing in chips saying, you owe us this, but because we're being obedient to him. Let us live 
as confident and cherished children of God, knowing that his delight in us is in a love that knows no bounds. If you think of something that is getting in the way of you being your best with him, present day or down the road, grab Mel after the service. He's over there. Come and see me. Come and talk to me. Grab a pastor. Grab a close confidant. This journey was not meant to be done alone. And it's not done from a position on the floor. Overwhelmed and tired. Let's rise up together. Let me pray. Father God, thank you, thank you, thank you. How amazing it is just to think that you would sing over us with delight. That you, our creator, enjoy spending time with us. No enemy is too big for you. Father, you are pursuing us because of that delight, not because of how smart we are or how wealthy we are or how much clout we have or anything else, Father. It's because we're your child. Thank you for that truth. Bless us, keep us, and Father, go with them now. It's in your name we pray. Amen. And I believe it's a tradition here um, at the end of the service that uh, I think Garen says all the time that you are sent. And uh, blessings to you. We'll see you another time.